Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, there are many blessings to being a, a father, uh, have the opportunity to raise children and children who are from me. You know, it's, it's pretty remarkable to think about that when you are a parent, is that you have these people who are walking this earth who bear resemblance to you because of DNA. But there is one thing that is so challenging um, during the times of fathering that are quite difficult. And it's that sense of feeling disrespected. I don't know if any of you um, fathers or mothers have ever felt disrespected by your children. It's a uh, really unnerving feeling. And it, it's that sense that, well, I've done so much for you. And I think I shared a little bit about this last weekend. This is the thanks that I get. And I'm I'm called by God to care for you, to provide oversight, and you're not respecting me. And those moments where God has clearly given us a role that is called to authority and leadership for the sake of the benefit and prosperity of this person called a son or daughter or a child. Wow, that really is disturbing. It's quite a challenge, actually, to do that rightly as a parent, as a father. Because disrespect is something that when it comes into your soul, it's hard to not feel angry or to feel frustrated. Why is that the case? Why do we actually, even if we are disrespected, why do we get angry? Did you ever wonder that perhaps there is something about that confrontation or conflict that touches or pricks a part of our hearts that says, this is who I am. I deserve respect based on no matter what it is. It could be in that instance, I'm your father. In another instance, I'm your boss. I'm the one who is ordering the food and you are the service person. You should show me respect. These type of incidences have caused not just fights, but deaths. Just one look the wrong way and suddenly, who do you think you are? Where does that all come from? It really stems from the idea that I work or I have worked or labored to get to a certain position in my life. And therefore, if you don't treat me in correspondence with what I have achieved and what I have done, then you're disrespecting me. You're not providing for me the identity that I so crave. That flows from the idea that we seek identity and worth and value based solely on what we ourselves accomplish. And may I tell you, that is a road to misery. As a father and as a parent, it is so important that yes, I am called to lead and guide and shepherd my children, but 
when I am mistreated or disrespected, my identity is not in their respect of me. My identity is in something else. Unless that takes hold, I will fly off the handle. I will go into a fit of rage. I will be angry and frustrated. I will give the silent treatment and punish and be punitive in my reactions. It's a really terrible cycle in this life. The Gospel of John tells us there's a different road. And there's a road to be taken. That road is possible not on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And what we're going to look at in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, is what it means to be a child of God. In the same way that you and I have the DNA of our parents, and so therefore, whether you like it or not, you look like your parents to some extent. You, your voice sounds the same as your parents. Anyone who has called siblings knows that sometimes you can't even tell who's on the other line because their voice is the same. Well, that's all due to biological connections. In the same way, we as children of God have a, have a real connection to our Father in heaven. We look like him to some extent. And so what John tells us is that we have to actually believe this to be true and we have to live as though we are children of God. But do we? Do we do this? We're going to look first at the condition to become a child of God. And then second, the characteristics of what it means to be children of God. First, the condition to become children of God. Verse 12 says, But to all who received, did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving Jesus believing in his name, it means that you fully trust your life to him. That you actually believe what he says that's true to your life. Another way to put it is that you submit your will to him, your life to him. Everything is centered around him. The way you view relationships, your future spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, you care more about what Jesus thinks than even what that person thinks. Your career is subsumed to him. You're willing to give up everything for his sake. Your understanding of the world, of government, of society, of law, all of that has Christ at the center of it. Everything you have is relinquished to him. You're dependent on him. Think of a young child. They sometimes want something very different from what their parents want. That's why it leads there's tantrums and fights and yelling and quarrel and crying and all those things. But generally speaking, they want their children. They need, I mean, they want their parents. They need their parents. So you bring them to a store and they're sort of leaning towards the toy section and you're getting ready to leave. You're getting ready to go and they just want to stay there and they throw a tantrum. It shows that they want what they want. But let's say you say, all right, if you're going to do that, I'm just going to go. And you start walking away. They might look at the toys, but suddenly that feeling of, uh-oh, my mom is leaving. And that sense of saying, they're making a choice. Am I going to choose the toy or my mom? And they run off saying, mommy. You know, and so they go back. You know, there's this, the, the child knows that they cannot survive without their parents, that young child. Now, obviously, as they get older, that sort of changes, right? 
But a young child knows that they need mom and dad. And without mom and dad, there's no hope of life. John is telling us that when you receive and believe in the name of Christ, what you're doing is you're saying, without Jesus, there's no hope of life. There's no comfort. There's no joy. There's no pleasure, ultimately. I need him. And yes, sometimes we veer off looking at the toys or the candy, but eventually we come back to saying, I got to go back. And that's what a child does. They always go back, always know whom they desperately need in their life. Notice also, John doesn't say, but to all who received Jesus, who believed in Jesus. Interestingly, it says, who believed in his name. Now, why his name instead of saying Jesus? Because the name of Jesus refers to whom he claims to be. It's not who we define who Jesus is or what the world says Jesus is, because the world thinks Jesus is a nice guy, a good teacher a moral religious man. He's someone you should follow every once in a while because he has some good things to say. You generally follow him, but then you decide to go off your own way. That doesn't tell us that he's Lord or Savior. It just says that he's a, a religious guru. And so religious people, and I define it by someone who is just seeing Christ simply by morality, ethics, um, comfort, prosperity, and that's it. The religious person sees Jesus as a good teacher, someone who is worth, worthy to follow, generally speaking, when he doesn't demand on you anything. But when you believe in his name, what you're saying is that the name of Jesus is above all other names, all other identities, all other hopes, all governments, all powers. It means that he's God, he's king he's lord because that's who he said he was i and the father are one so he doesn't say i'm a really great teacher or i'm just a rabbi he says i'm god you have to submit to me if you're going to follow me anyone who denies himself must take up his cross and follow me there's no middle ground so you have to believe and live as though he is god king lord savior he's the way the truth and the life, he's the bread of life. He is everything to you. And without him, you cannot survive. Children think that way. A child knows ultimately, I need mom and dad. I cannot survive without him. A child of God knows the same thing. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you say, I believe and have received Christ, then you believe in his name. And if you believe in his name, it means you believe him as king. And if you believe him as king and Lord, that means there is no part of your life that is off limits to him. Everything is submitted to him and you're going to run to him desperately all the time. So that's the condition to be a child of God. Unless you have that, what John is saying is you're not a child of God. You're just a religious person who actually believes in the religion of Christianity, who can check the box in a census, census and say, I am a Christian but you're not a child of God. What does a child of God actually look like? We see this in this verse, verses 13, 14. It's so clear. First, a child of God lives by grace, meaning they know that they are children solely by grace alone. 
If you look at what John says again, he says, he gave the right to become children of God. The word gave means it's a gift. He just gave it. There's, it doesn't say uh, we worked hard or we paid him back. We paid a debt to become a child of God. It says, no, he gave. That's it. There's no other condition. Nothing else that we've done. So there's nothing you do that allows you to be a child of God. It's a gift. You didn't achieve it. And he chose you. He brought you into his family. He loved you, not because of anything you failed to do or anything you chose to do. It's just simply because God loves you. And he decided to do this. And nothing you did past or currently present or in the future will make you more a child of God. You're always a child of God. And the great thing is, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. Not even yourself. Isn't that good news? That you can't mess up so bad that you will no longer be a child of God. Now, think about our own children. If you have children, you know that our children mess up, sometimes really big, sometimes terribly, and big, big problems. But they're yours. In the end, they are yours. No matter what they do, no matter how, much, how disobedient they are, no matter how rebellious, and sometimes it can be heartbreakingly rebellious, but they are still yours. But we're sinners. We are weak as parents. Our God is perfect. So we know that he is infinite in his patience with us. And he is willing to do whatever he can, and he can do everything to make sure that we will be with him forever. Nothing will stop that. And so think about the idea of being a part of a family. You did not pay for your children. You did not, I mean, I know you're paying for your children now, you know, up to maybe a million dollars per child by the time they leave your home. And so there's a lot of money that goes out, but you didn't actually provide a fee. And you might say, well, I paid at the hospital for it. Um, you know what I'm talking about. You, you did not have to pay this fee that says, all right, this child is mine. Now, you might say, well, I'm adopted. There is a fee involved. It's true. There is a fee. But in the end, no one forced you to pay that fee for that child. You chose to do it. And so there's ultimately no payment that is required that you're going to say, you have to continue paying this fee. You don't have to do chores in your family to still be a mom or dad. Now, does a child, should a child do chores in a family? Yes, absolutely. It's a responsibility because they are already part of the family, not a condition to be part of the family. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, you have to do the dishes every day or else you're no longer my son. That's not how it works. They're already your son. You want them to do dishes every day because that's what it means maybe to be part of a family as just to be a responsible member of the family. But it's not the condition to be a member of the family. And yet that's so often how we think of God. God, I know I'm not really your child unless I read the Bible this many times and I go to church this many times and I evangelize to this many people and I forgive this person this many times. That's not how it works. No, we are children of God because God has given us this gift. So that's the first characteristic. Second is that we have the right, 
It's a right to be the child of God. He gave this right. This right is a legal right. It had, it did have a cost. As much as I say, we don't pay to be a child of God, we ourselves, but actually Jesus paid though. See, we didn't pay anything. Jesus paid everything. And because Jesus paid for our adoption, we are brought into his family. And in that sense, you could think of it that way is that a child who is adopted doesn't pay to be adopted. They don't have to submit. They're not the ones submitting the fees to the adoption agency. It's the parent who is paying the money, who's trying to, who's going to say, this is mine. I'm going to choose this person. And so then I'm going to bring them home. So adoption has a financial cost. It definitely has an emotional cost. For any adoptive parents, you know this to be true, is that it, it's hard to bring that bond together between an adopted child and a parent who is adopting that child. There's also a cost even if you are naturally born. There's the physical pain that a, a mother goes through uh, that is so painful that sometimes they get, it's so painful, they, they can't even help it, but they react even against the husband, let's say, and I don't know, get really angry at the husband during birth. It happens. There's the financial cost, as I said, of educating, providing. There's the en cost of energy and angst and time and care all over a many years, a couple of decades. Well, my friends, if you have believed and received Jesus, you have the power to live as a child of God, but you must never forget that for you to be brought into his family, to have the right to be called a child of God, there was a cost to be paid for you. And that price was the infinite price of God's own son, his shed blood for you. That has to be at the forefront of who you are, and it's a severe price. Pastor Erwin Lutzer, of, um, formerly of a Moody Bible Church, he describes it this way. He says, imagine a book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. It contains all the perfections of Christ, the works he did, his holy obedience, his purity, his right motives, a beautiful book indeed. Then imagine another book, The Life and Times of, now insert your name, I'll insert mine, Sam. The Life and Times of Sam. It contains all of your sins, immorality, broken promises, and betrayal of friends. It will contain sinful thoughts, mixed motives, and acts of disobedience. Finally, imagine Christ taking both books, stripping them of their covers. Then he takes the contents of his own book and slips it between the covers of your book. We pick up the book to examine it. The title reads, The Life and Times of Sam. And we open the book and turn the pages and find no sins listed. All that we see is a long list of perfections obedience, moral purity, and perfect love. This book is so beautiful that even God adores it. But now Jesus' book has all of the terrible sins of your life, all the lies, all the lusts, all the foul mouth, violence, rage, anger, jealousies, pettiness, just the loads of garbage that corrodes our hearts. He bore the curse of that. 
Our rights means his costs. So how can we ever say that Jesus doesn't love us? If you've ever been tempted to think that Jesus doesn't love you, you have to ask a better question. Why does he choose to love someone like me? That's the real question. So those moments that it might seem dark or difficult, and we're tempted to blame Jesus for everything, all the bad things that happen in our lives, it's probably because we have forgotten this idea that God gave his son that he would pay the price so that we would have the right to be called a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. That right always comes with a cost. So we should never, ever say God doesn't love us. He's already proven he has loved us infinitely more than we could ever imagine. The next characteristic is identity. When you consider what it means to have the right to become children of God, it truly is astounding. We have a a new identity. Regardless of our previous state, what we thought of ourselves, what anyone else thinks of you, the fact is you are today, right now, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Think of what you do every day, all the different people and institutions that interact with you in your life, at work, what your children think of you, what your spouse thinks of you, what your parents think of you, what you Think of if you're a student, you're at school. How much of every day is defined by what your teachers think of you, what your friends think of you, what your non-friends think of you, what certain social groups think of you. And then you have society. If you go to a certain school, if you have a certain type of job, if you make a certain amount of money, if you're married, if you're not married, there are so many areas of our lives that are always pushing to define who you are. And the problem is we actually believe it. We, we buy fully into the idea that what everyone thinks of me is who I truly am. And so we have to go out and shake hands with a big smile and say hello with a big strong handshake. We have to dress a certain way and put on makeup and make sure that we, no one ever sees us without makeup, ever. We have to make sure that our house is totally clean so when someone comes in, they say, you are Marie Kondo. It used to be uh, Martha Stewart, now it's Marie Kondo. You, know, you are the person who has everything well put together. This identity challenge for us, it has led to horrific consequences. When we have our identity in Christ and we are a child of God, it makes not any difference where you're born, what your circumstances have been, what losses you have, what victories you have. If you were born on the streets of Berkeley or if you were born in Buckingham Palace, if you are in Christ, you're a child of God. That's your identity. Not whether you're homeless or whether you live in a palace. If you have been born in the best hospital money could afford. You know, one of those VIP suites in a hospital. Or if your mother abandoned you in a trash dumpster. If you are a child of God, then you have everything. And you are part of God's family. And that same price that God paid through his son to give you the right to be called a son of God, that's for you. It it doesn't, doesn't matter where you're from. 
And so your identity is the same as that child of the, of the God of the universe. It's important to realize that this identity, though, has to be claimed. It has to be applied to your life. When John says this, he says, he gave the right to become. That phrase is actually, it's an interesting phrase. It, it means that you have to apply it. It's uh, something that you place authority over. And you say, this is what I choose to believe of myself. You have to make it your own and decide for yourself, this is who I am. So what John is saying is that you can't, it doesn't just, it is happening, but you have to actually believe it to be true. And let me just give you an example. You're locked up in a tower and you know, by these cap, these uh, captors that hold you hostage in this tower. And all these armed guards are guarding this tower and you're locked up, there's no way out. Suddenly this rescuer comes, he kills all those who are guarding the tower, is able to open the door, but dies in the process. So the door is swung open. There's no one guarding the tower anymore. You are free to go, but you're still there in that tower saying, there's no way I'm free. I'm not leaving this place. I'm still a prisoner. I can't leave. I know there are guards. I know the door is locked. I'm not going to go. So he's stuck there. Now the question is, are you free? Of course you're free. There's nothing impeding your desire to your ability to just simply go out, but it's your application of that freedom that is missing. And my friends, that's what so many of us are like as even Christians. You have been set free, but we're living as though we're not free. We're living as though we're defined by who we are, by what we've accomplished, by what other people think of us, by whether we're good enough as a mom or dad, whether we're good enough as a son or daughter, whether we're good at school, whether we're good at work. And all of that just is so oppressive. It takes hold of us, and it is the true captive that is in our souls. It captivates us and holds us prisoner to the freedom that God has given to us. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4, 3 to 5. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you foolish? I mean, what's wrong with you? That's what Paul's saying. God saved you by the Spirit, by nothing else. Then afterward, why do you suddenly go to think, it's actually what you do, the law, the works that actually saves you, makes you someone special. It's solely the spirit. Now, I know this because I was that captive. For I was saved and when I was 15 years old. I really believe that. But from 15 to 2005, so many years, and so I was saved at 1985 to 2005. Um, that's a long time. For that long, I live like a captive, meaning I was saved, the door was swung open, but I was still thinking I have to prove myself. I have to be somebody. I have to be a better son. I have to be a better husband. Definitely I have to be a better pastor. And the way that, I'm, the way that I prove that I, I'm a better pastor is I pray more than all of you. I, read, I know more about the Bible. 
I know a lot of theology. And so therefore, when you see me, you see me praying. You see me on my knees. And so if you're walking by the office, I might be taking a nap or something, and I hear you, and I'll just run to the floor and go on my knees. Oh, Lord, I hope they don't see that I was taking a nap. (laughs) And they think I'm lazy. I know that's a little, it sounds like a joke, but there was a lot of that, actually, for so many years. And you know what that is? That's called misery. And it's tiresome. You can only put up that sham for so long until someone sees you. And you know what happens? They say, Actually, I thought you were holier than you are. I thought you were better off. And then you start feeling miserable about yourself, condemning yourself, feeling like, okay, I got to do better than this. And it's this cycle of proof, defending yourself, anger, and it's this constant sort of treadmill of misery. I know most of you are not in pastoral ministry. I don't think most of you are not. And, uh, But you have that in you. We have that at work, at home, everywhere where we go. We're trying to prove ourselves to be worthwhile, to be special, to be significant, to be accepted, to be loved. And the Lord is saying, I paid the price for you for that already. Why are you still trying? Or as Paul is saying, are you an idiot? I mean, that's what he's saying. Are you so foolish? I mean, I saved you by the Spirit, not by the things you do, and now you're still living as though it's the things you do that makes you worthwhile. This is a a terrible lie that we Christians so easily fall into. You are born again, and now suddenly we think you really need to obey him now, or else he won't love you anymore. He's going to reject you. Or maybe we fall... Um, fall into this dread, feeling like if we fail God, he's going to let us go. We're a lost cause. Or perhaps we're significant only because we're smart, beautiful, athletic, funny, the life of the party, and we're never going to sin and never fail because we Christians can't show others our flaws. That leads to a really terrible consequence of feeling like there are these levels of Christianity, just like Buddhism that there's a high spiritual sort of plateau, whether it's uh, the pastor, missionary, or the Bible study leader, gospel community leader, youth leader, whatever it might be, deacon, elder, that's the highest level. My friends, that's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. And so what we have to actually see is when God saves us, he saved us from the lowest pits and he rescued us and brings us into his family. And you're now, all of us, if you are in Christ, you are a child of the king. That's who you really are. And so when you meet someone, you don't have to say, I have these degrees and I'm musically talented and I'm, I wear this type of clothing. I graduated from this school. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just define ourselves by simply saying, I'm Sam, that's it. And you know who you are, I'm a child of God. A long time ago, there was a a lot of the cars, if you were a medical doctor, you would have on your license plate, MD. It would actually say it. I don't know for those of you who are my age. I remember seeing that and you think, wow, 
that just means that you should try to get into an accident with that car because that person's wealthy. That's what you did. But what it really had this idea of, are they saying that that's who they are? They're defining themselves by their profession? That's a sad place to be. And you cannot keep that going. Eventually, it will fall short. The freest people are free because of who they are in Christ. And that frees you to be compassionate, to defend the defenseless, to be comfortable in your past, even in your past sins, to be able to share a testimony of complete brokenness in your life, where you turned away from the Lord, where you were an alcoholic, a drug addict, where you did horrific things. The Apostle Paul did that so many times in the book of Acts because he was so confident in his identity in Christ that his past was now a picture of how good God is. That's what it's supposed to be like. We are so freed in Christ that we don't have skeletons. The skeletons all come out and we're glad for them because they show how glorious our God is that he would save a wretch like me. But God doesn't do that because he wants us to be miserable. He does that because he wants our utmost joy. And he shows us that in what is to come, our inheritance. It's the, the final characteristic of the child of God. He gave the right to become children of God. And in the Bible, this assumes that children deserve to be heirs. They are inheritors of their parents' property. In the same way, we see this spiritually, is that if we are in Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. Because we are co-heirs with Christ, whatever Jesus will get eternally is what we will get. If you don't believe me, let's just look at Romans 8, 16, 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 6 or 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, just imagine that. Whatever Jesus gets, we get because of what Jesus has done for us. This is exactly why Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Should Die For Me? Because he was thinking about this idea of, wait a second, Jesus, you paid the price for me to be with you forever, and now whatever you get, I get? That's just astounding. Like, why would you do that? Who, who does that? Our God does that. This is what a child of God has before us. Tim Keller describes well what the future looks like as inheritors. On that day, when the world is revealed in its glory, every blade of grass will be so clear, so sharp, so radiant, so colorful, so unbearingly beautiful that we'll bow down and worship the one who made it. We'll get new bodies, glorified bodies. That'll be our inheritance too. C.S. Lewis says, he can make the feeblest and filthiest of us into bright stainless mirrors, reflecting back to God his own boundless love and glory and beauty and delight and nobility and wisdom. That's your inheritance. If you're in Christ, when we are with the Lord on the new heavens and the new earth, forget about this beautiful scene 
a blade of grass will be so stunning that that will cause you to give thanks and worship the Lord. Just one blade out of an eternity of new heavens and new earth. So we live today, no matter how hard, how lonely, how taxing, no matter how much our bodies break down, we live today knowing exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is how sons and daughters live. We live with this view of eternal weight and glory as our inheritance forever. I was uh, hiking with my family last week. Um, we were, we, we decided to sort of, it was actually after Axis, we said, let's go to the Oakland Redwoods and do a quick hike. So we went at four, and we never actually hiked at that time. And so we got to the, the peak of a mountain, and as we're heading towards the top, because the sun was setting, the sun beamed right into my eyes. And it was so bright because of that sunset that it, it literally blinded me. I mean, it, it felt, I couldn't see a single thing. I could not see anyone around me. I couldn't see the sun. I couldn't see trees, dirt, nothing. All I saw was brightness. And I thought that was just so interesting because when I think of being blinded, not being able to see anything, I think of darkness. I just think everything's dark and you can't see. But that moment, it was so bright, I couldn't see a single thing. And I just thought, and even though it was this place of utter dark, uh, utter blindness, there was warmth. You know, it was, it was this sense that I'm at the top of the peak and there it was, everything was just, blinded by this light, so bright, covered. It is going to be like this for us. When we see the beauty of Christ and the glory of who he is and all that he has done for us, it will make everything subsume to that. There will be no more pain, no tears, no striving, no proving yourself, no trying to determine and you won't need any substance to try to make yourself feel better or lessen the pain or take the edges off. The brightness is so bright, but all you will see is Christ. And when you see Christ, you will find such joy. The joy that you have now multiplied infinitely. And that came at a price because you are a child, if you're in Christ, and as a child of God, the price of this table reminds you that you are his forever. May you never forget that. He gave you the right to be a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, for those of us who are in this room, perhaps who have never believed in Jesus, not the name of Jesus, believe perhaps in a Jesus, a religious teacher, someone who is good for morality, for making us feel good about ourselves, for making us productive members of society, who thinks of Jesus as a system, as a plan, as one part of our lives, 
but I've never received the name of Jesus. Lord, help them to see what they're missing. Convict them that to not be a child of God, because they're not, they're but a religious person. They need to see the joy of salvation and that surrendering their whole life to you is not a sacrifice. It is what our hearts are ultimately craving for. And we are striving against ourselves by pursuing all these other things, other acclamations of this world. For those who are in Christ, O oh Lord, who have not ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good and have not applied their freedom in Christ as a son or daughter. Help them to see that they have been set free from the law of sin and death. It's not something that they need to try to prove themselves of as a Christian. And only then will they finally be free to enjoy you and others rightly. Lord, you have paid a dear and heavy price so that we can have this eternal inheritance of being a son and daughter and of just waiting for that time of glory. May we apply that to our every day when the rains are coming, when our bodies are breaking down, when our incomes are drying up, when people are not with us as we expected them to be. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust you and to believe that you are the Lord. We can surrender and give ourselves to you knowing that it is safe and most secure to do so in Christ. We just lift up your name. We love you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.